This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I think that there's a way that sometimes museums are seen as scary, but it's not like a trip to the dentist's office. It's like the thing that you're scared of is that you might not know. And so I hope through images, through sound, through through different programming that I've done over the years, that it helped to demystify it for those who couldn't imagine themselves in those spaces. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Roman Alam. Roman, this week you spoke with writer and art curator Kimberly Drew, who we just heard from. I know from previous episodes that you're a keen museum goer, New York's museums and galleries have finally and slowly started to reopen in recent weeks. What's the first place you want to visit? I think that I'll probably go to the Brooklyn Museum first. It's my local spot, and it's one of those great encyclopedic institutions with a smattering of everything. You know, Egyptian art, modern art, Mm. classical art. And it's a place that I could just stroll through happily and lose myself. And I've really missed that place. Yes, I, it's on my kind of walk route and it's just been a weird landmark that's just there but closed. So I'm really glad that there's going to be people inside it again. Yeah, there's something so deeply sad about a museum that is just sort of closed for business for an indefinite mm. period of time because, you know, um, we're members, my family are members, you're probably a member. And it's just one of those things that's like part of your walkabout routine and if you find yourself Mm -hmm. in the neighborhood and you're like oh I need to run to the bathroom I'll run into the museum (laughs) I'll show them my ID you know I'll use the bathroom and maybe I'll just like pop upstairs and look at something for 15 minutes just to you know like it's just such a wonderful enriching part of sort of making the circuit around our neighborhood. Amen. So this week we'll be hearing your conversation with Kimberly Drew. Who is she? You know I first became aware of Drew's work on social media because that work her presence on social media earned Kimberly a lot of attention from the conventional media. You know, the art world is often a very staid, sort of fussy, old world business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Kimberly joined the Metropolitan Museum of Art to manage that institution's social media presence. And that move alone was news. The idea that this great institution of the New York art world or sort of the, you know, the global art world would deign to care about Instagram and Twitter was kind of news. And Kimberly is a young person. She's a woman of color. It was sort of a big deal that hire. And um, so I think that's when I first became aware of her work. Although it's also possible that at some point, one of the algorithms told me to pay attention to her. 
<laughs> she has a book out, I believe. It's called This Is What I Know About Art. And it's written for young people, which makes me very curious when I think of art and kids I either think of picture books, which I'm sure it's not, or textbooks, which I'm guessing it's also not. So how would you describe its tone? Yes, it is an unusual text. It's a very slender kind of autobiographical rumination on the role of art in the author's life. Mm. It's written in this very intimate tone. And I, I think that the art-inclined teen reader right, the sort of YA reader, will find the tone really alluring. It's a little like having a conversation with a cool older person, like a cool older cousin or a cool older sibling who happens to love the same things you do. And it, and the voice doesn't condescend to the reader, but really welcomes them in and says, like, hey, this is how I came to get excited about art. And there's something sort of infectious about it. And it made me very excited to have this book on the shelves for my kids, my, my older son just turned 11 um, in the last month, and the idea that he might pick this up at 14, you know, rejecting a lifetime of me trying to get him interested in art, but sort of <laughs> getting excited about art because this cool older person was like, hey, you might like this. That's awesome. Before we get to the interview, I also want to mention that Slate Plus members will hear a little something extra from your conversation in which Kimberly talks about how she got her start in this world and... She also talks about an artist that's on her mind in these very strange times right now. If you aren't yet a member of Slate Plus, you can get two weeks free. Just go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's hear Roman's conversation with Kimberly Drew. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. If you imagine yourself running into one of your mother's friends on the street and they said to you, like, what do you do? What are you doing? <laughs> How would you answer that question? What do you do? It's funny because I think if I answered to one of my mom's friends, I would be really specific. I'd be like, this is what I'm doing right now, which in many ways is representative of my career and that. I wouldn't say that there's one thing that I do singularly. I very much feel like um, a gun for hire and I'm often presented with different challenges and a lot of my work is finding solutions for those challenges, whether that be the challenges of being a writer, the challenges of being an author, the challenges of working in the arts and in proximity to artists. But it's really quite difficult to explain even to friends in industry what I do. I want to sort of start in your youth. And I wonder if you can answer for me what the role of art was in your life when you were a kid. I mean, it took many, many different shapes. I was lucky enough. Um, I was born in 90 and also grew up in New Jersey. And so I had access to an education system where art was taught, um, which is not what a lot of kids and parents can say right now. 
So I think for me, art was always something that there was an infrastructure around, um, whether that was family trips to museums or I have family members who are artists and kind of have extreme proximity to creative practices. And then at school, there was always an art class um, kind of throughout my entire education. But was it a thing you had to have, a passion, or was it simply part of the texture of your life? I wouldn't say it was a had to, or like, I had no extreme urgency around art until I got to college. It was just always there. And I think if I were perhaps of a different walk of life, someone would observe kind of my natural draw to it and say like, oh, you should probably consider a career in it. But it's so rare that people say that to young, especially young black kids. Almost no one is saying that to young black kids, actually. Um, And so it took me my own kind of, not necessarily rough and tumble, but it was definitely an explorative process to realize that that was the work that I should be doing. Because up until kind of, I guess, until I had my first internship, I would have never thought that that would be the work that I do. And now it's kind of like my heartbeat more than anything else. The point at which you kind of fell in love with art as a, as a grown-up pursuit and not simply a part of the texture of your life, and this is something that you write about in your book, which is called This Is What I Know About Art, that moment occurred during your college education, like during your undergraduate years. And you didn't grow up ignorant of art by any means, but I loved your describing a kind of adulthood awakening around art. And I wonder if you could sort of talk about what that was. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that feels most urgent to say, though, is that I don't think anyone grows up ignorant to art. Like, we live in houses, we live on streets, we live, you know, we eat food. There's so much art in and around our lives. And I think the most lucky of us are those who have guidance and caregivers who understand and nourish that relationship. And so for me, it was just kind of like, it was always around, it was always encouraged. And that's also how I could then later kind of after being away from home and away from my parents for six or seven years already, because I went to boarding school for high school, could on my own make the decision that art was what I wanted to pursue Um, and could see almost immediately the inherent value in it. Like I never had to second guess studying art history. For me, it was more of an educational journey where I had started doing, uh, I had started as a pre-med major and then I moved on to engineering and in art history, I was like, oh, this is how my brain wants to learn. But I think it's really important for anyone who is in a nurturing capacity for any person at any really stage of their life is that there's an understanding and importance and a value intrinsically in art. You know, even thinking about in within this COVID moment, the first thing that everyone's turning to is films and television and, you know, baking sourdough or whatever. Like there's so much that we at a very base level as humans need in relationship to art, but it's just not privileged as or I guess respected kind of on a broad level culturally in a way that I would hope it would be seeing as essential as it is. In a way, I feel like the answer you just gave provides the answer to our first question, which is like, that's the work that you do is sort of demonstrating the importance of art as you understand it or advocating for the significance of art as you understand it. Mm your professional awakening around art, your decision to change your major as an undergraduate came 
in a period where you were working, you were interning at the Studio Museum in Harlem. And you made a blog, you made a Tumblr page called Black Contemporary Art. Um, The blog would take works of art, mostly by Black artists, or depictions of Blackness, and then sort of just communicating, like, this is what you're looking at. Like, this is the thing that you're looking at. And um, to me, it is the kind of thing that, like, the internet is so good at. It's just, it has, like, discipline to it, and it has beauty to it, and you can sort of sit and get lost in it, or you can come back and revisit it over time. Um, But now it has concluded. Is that right? Like, you no longer... Well, first I'll say it's exclusively Black artists, um, Mm -hmm. and it's works by Black artists and or in some relationship to Black culture. And that verbiage really is really specific because there are works by Black artists that are abstract and in no way Mm -hmm. deal directly with, um, you know, the work doesn't have to be directly interested in Blackness as a subject or um, Black subjectivity to qualify to be featured, but everyone that's on it is Black. And it is also a blog that um, in its construction is the artwork and then only the title of the work, the artist's name and the year it was created, which is a lot of context because I think when things are created is really valuable. I think who creates them, of course, is of the utmost importance. And then the titles are just fun sometimes um, (laughs) because I love like an entitled and I also love, you know, the really laborious, long-winded title but I think it's really important, especially in an internet economy, to make sure that the authorship is always associated with the image. Um, but I, when I started the blog, I didn't think that there was an art historical language that could speak to work by Black artists because I wasn't taught it. And so it allowed people what I have described as like a primary encounter to the work. And if you want to know more, there's usually a link to the artist's website or a link to the website to the museum where the work was found so that you could get that secondary kind of context and information. But I think that the, the blog's greatest success was that simplicity because you don't have to know a lot. And that's I kind of, in an ideal world, what museums do, you know, they're in within this kind of larger field of glam, which is uh, galleries, libraries, and museums, where you're not supposed to go there knowing everything. Like, that's the myth of museums. Somewhere along the line, it became like, if I don't know this, this, or this, then I shouldn't go. And I think that's one of the greater barriers to access. So I think in its success, the blog was like, yeah, here's just this thing. And if you come back, even in two hours, there will be a new thing. And yeah. tomorrow there'll be yeah. 10 new things. And um, you, had a, you had a lot of energy in your teen years to update yeah. this thing. You know? Nothing like being like 19 and 20, because <laughs> 19 or 20 on a small college campus, like that was yeah. all I had. <laughs> What relationship do you see between the work that you're doing now? You're, I, I think that I would probably describe you and you would probably describe yourself now working as a writer. But what relationship do you see between the work you're doing as a writer and that experiment of playing around on Tumblr? Yeah, um, I would say that I'm still really invested in experimentation. At its base, Black Contemporary Art was kind of an experiment in learning Um, even writing was kind of an experiment because it was never something that I thought I could do. And now it's my profession. It always kind of has been my profession. Like even being a social media manager is just being a glorified copywriter. And in this phase now, I think I'm experimenting with um, just other forms of media and reaching people, um, different ways of storytelling around the arts, because I think there is a commitment and responsibility that I feel to making it make sense for folks. Um, and so I think that's the biggest part. And then in December, 
my next book, Black Futures, will come out, which is kind of an interesting chapter in the trajectory because it is a book that is about the kind of insecurity in some ways of the internet, you know, like right now, black contemporary art isn't necessarily over because it hasn't been properly archived. Mm -hmm. And so right now I'm working this summer to archive it. Um, And that's when I think in some ways, at least my participant, like the active kind of years of it will close. And Black Futures is really a book that's interested in saying, you know, what does it mean to be Black and alive right now? What does it mean that social media platforms like Tumblr, like Twitter, like Facebook have been able to allow so many Black folks to create together, to connect together? But if any of those platforms were to close tomorrow, so many of those, so many of the records of those connections would, would disappear with it. So Tumblr was a, is a social media platform and you went on to have a career working in social media specifically. Uh, you went back to the Studio Museum, having been an intern there as a social media manager. That was before you went to the Metropolitan Museum, right? Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about... I think there's a way in which people misunderstand what social media is, but I think that you probably have a really good answer about what it is and what it is able to do. And there's an example you mentioned in the book, but I'd love to hear you just sort of talk about what opportunity social media presented for you in terms of telling a story about what the Studio Museum in Harlem was and is and who it was for? Yeah, so in my role at the Studio Museum, I was there in 2013, and I was hired as a communications assistant. So I was doing a mix of different things. I was like managing interns and working on the website and I had to learn InDesign. Like I was doing many, 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 many things. And I didn't actually get a job doing full-time social media until I was at the Metropolitan Museum. But when I was at the Studio Museum, I think I was able to employ social media to help illustrate what was going on inside the museum. Like I think at, at the very most base level, museum social media is one of the first instances in which constituents and uh, institutions can be dialogical, um, which is what many people who like theorize about social media say. So you could have this, you know, question and exchange. Are you open today? Are, you know, who made this work? Or, you know, there's fun days like Ask a Curator Day or something like that where you can really be in conversation. And then on the other side, I think it's a way to have a passive, somewhat passive learning experience. Um, So if you're really following a museum page, you can get updates about programming, updates about the collection, um, you know, be able to access talks that have come up or whatever. Um, YouTube is an incredible resource um, where you can learn, you can watch an artist make a work on YouTube. Um, Many museums have those types of, um, especially educational resources. And so it's really a resource sharing that's happening from the institutional desk to the world. You talk in the book about the ability to show like the interior of a gallery and show the kinds of people who are actually in there as a way of the museum being able to tell a story about itself that maybe it did the, and maybe the institution didn't realize that it wasn't doing that, that, you know, it's called the studio museum in Harlem. So maybe the institution assumed that by virtue of its geography and its name, that like that story would be clear to all people. And I think what you, when you talk about using social media to just literally say, this is what the museum looks like inside. And 
there are people in here who look like you because they are your neighbors. And so you should come in too. I find that very striking. And I find that really, and you also talk, um, it's a small thing, but very telling. You talk about the stairs to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where you were later uh, working in the social media capacity. And, you know, those grand stairs represent a literally kind of a barrier. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, I mean, all my friends are tormented by this, but like, whenever we go anywhere, I need to see it. You know, like, I think it's like like Airbnb or whatever, or Zillow or Street Easy, like all of us kind of do that thing where, you know, you might not be looking for an apartment, but you just kind of go and scan. Like, I think innate in so much of human culture, especially for those who have a curiosity generally about something, like, you want to have a way of not you know, not limited to seeing, but just to being able to comprehend a space before you get there. And especially if you're low sighted, like you really need to know how you're going to circumambulate a space. And so being able to properly anticipate an experience, I think is such a big barrier for so many. That's, I think so, it's like not normalized to talk about, but I just, I need to, I need to understand the architecture of a space. I need to understand the proximity to the closest store. Like I need to know, you know, I need to see all the exits. I need all that information to have what is, you know, a vulnerable experience is, which is what entering into a space of learning is for all of us. You know, like I think that there's a way that sometimes museums are seen as scary, but it's not like a trip to the dentist's office. It's like the thing that you're scared of is that you might not know. And that, is definitely a fear, but more than anything, it's just like an announcing a, a vulnerability that you may have. And so I hope through images, through sound, through through different programming that I've done over the years, that it helped to demystify it for those who couldn't imagine themselves in those spaces. Um, because there's so many ways that institutions are shifting and changing to better accommodate, including like low vision tours and touch tours, you know? So museums are really innovating. And if you don't know that that innovation is happening, then you won't go and then the programs will fail. And so, you know, because any, any museum fails without its audience, like that's what museums are built for. It's for people. We'll be back with more of Roman Alam's conversation with Kimberly Drew after this. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems, whether it's a specific challenge about your work or a big question about inspiration and discipline, send them to us at working at slate.com. If and when we can, we'll put those questions to our guests. Okay, let's rejoin Roman's conversation with Kimberly Drew. In This Is What I Know About Art, you write about an experience you had with your mother at the Whitney Museum where you're having a conversation about Warhol and it comes up that your mother is acknowledging that she hasn't been to a museum like really in decades. And you say, I'm going to read what you write. My mother had lived for more than two decades without a visit to a museum and it seemingly had little impact on her life. What do museums even do? Do you have an answer to that question? 
Like, do you have an answer to why it's important to you that people like your mother understand that museums are spaces that belong to them as much as they belong to any of us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's in two parts. One, it, that was kind of a criticism of museums in general because I think there's a way that especially when you're doing the work, like you make a podcast, you know, like your assumption is that people will listen to your podcast naturally. Um, There's so many ways in which we make assumptions about how the work that we do will benefit others or that people will want to participate or that there is kind of a natural inclination around participation. And I think that's a mistake. I think it's our job to provide something that is relevant, something that is so well done that if someone has even the slightest contact with it, that they're interested, right? And that's not always how those conversations are happening, especially in institutions. Um, It's like, no, we're the first, the best, the grandest. And so of course people will want to come visit us. Or, you know, we had 7 million visitors at the Louvre last year. Of course people love the Louvre. It's like, no, we still have to invest in outreach. We still have to invest in providing an experience for others. What do I think that experience is? There is no answer. I mean, for me, museums have completely transformed my life. I've had art experiences that have completely shifted the way that I view the world around me, the way that I do the things I do that have on a chemical level changed the way that I see others. But is that everyone's experience? No. Sometimes you have really bad day at the museum. Sometimes people just go to the museum because it's raining and that's great. (laughs) Like that's great you know, that they can be a shelter space or an opportunity to break from heat or um, they can be repositories for thousands and thousands of years of history. Um, I think the multiplicity to me is what museums do. The abundance is what museums do. But I don't think it necessarily is like one-to-one. This is what someone like my mom will get out of museums. I think my mom's best museum experience we had ever together was going through the Met and her seeing like all these paintings of Jesus because my mom's super religious and she's like, I know him, you know? And so like that moment of like being in a space that she doesn't feel particularly comfortable in, but seeing these images that she knows from church, that's important. Cause like her kid is there every day. And, you know, so I think it really varies, but yeah, I think in general, it's, it's two part in that we can't assume that people are naturally going to feel comfortable or interested. And then also if they do arrive, then maybe there is something that's there for them. Um, But it's never guaranteed. And it's so, I mean, that's such an interesting story about your mom responding to depictions of Jesus because it's sort of, I'm not sure that the institution always values the simple experience of joy or pleasure, that we think of museums as being nutritious or educational, but also there is something to just walking through and being like, oh, that's a pretty apple. Like, that's cool. Like, I wonder how they painted that. Like, like maybe that can be as valid. Just to have some response, whatever that response is. If it's something that brings you happiness, then maybe that can be valid enough. I mean, I don't think any of it is invalid. Um, or I don't think it's seen as invalid in my experience. I think there's millions and millions of ways that any person can interact with something that I don't think everyone can account for. But I think there is incredible passion that goes into the study and mounting of works, which is one of the like false dichotomies between like visitor and curator or visitor and art handler or visitor and uh, conservator, where it's like, these are also people. When I was at the Met, there was a Michelangelo exhibition and um, Carmen who curated the exhibition had worked on the show for 40 years. That's a love affair. You know, like that's not just like intensive scholarship. Like, 
40 years, like that's 10 more years than I've been alive. And like, that's kind of incredible. You know, I don't, I don't have that attention span. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I found really striking in this, in your book, this is what I know about art. You write about being a young person working inside of these institutions. You were young, you were black, you're a woman, you're queer. So you were just, there's a lot of, you were carrying a lot of difference or whatever. You were carrying what we call difference, but really it's just like you were yourself and the institution maybe was not filled with people who are like you. And we're all dealing in our own ways with thinking about police violence, with thinking about just like the epidemic of violence against our black citizens. And it really affected you. And then you write this thing that I thought was so beautiful. My faith in the importance of art had never been more concrete. It was images, sculptures, and writing that helped me wade through the anger I was feeling. Do you think art still is performing that function for you? And do you think art is performing that function for the rest of our citizens right now? I don't think that art is a one-to-one solution for the world's ills. But what I do really value is the way that Art can be, one, an opportunity for departure, whether that's making art yourself. Like in the beginning of COVID, I was making art for the first time in probably like 10 years, which is so funny because everyone thinks I'm an artist and I'm not. Um, But I was like making collages and it was really nice to just have a tactile activity that wasn't touching my phone. Um, (laughs) And then I think being able to see, much like literature or film, to see someone else in, in like I think in best case seeing someone maybe of your similar walk of life feeling the feelings that you may not have been able to articulate yet is really powerful which is why I feel like you know everyone loves like Toni Morrison and James Baldwin it's like they are so masterful at making language in moments where so many feel really incapable of making sense of the world and then the third thing I'll say about art that I really love and this is just like a shout out to Meg Only who's a curator at the ICA Philly Um, but Meg amongst many, many other art efforts, but I want to shout out Meg specifically because she started an art for Philadelphia fund, um, and partnered with some amazing artists to sell prints. Um, and the money from those prints would go to support, um, to help pay for people's bail money. So doing bail fundraising and, there's just so many ways that art exists in our world, like going back to even, and I learned this through Kelly Jones's exhibition witness about um, the civil rights movement, but there were art fundraisers for SNCC and art fundraisers for these incredible civil rights organizations. And there's so many ways that not only is art, you know, a record of our time or something that we can do in real time, but it is also like this instigating force in seeing change and so I think for me, it's, it's those moments, especially in a moment like this one, where I can look and see people having conversations about like, do we need museums? And, and what does it mean, you know, that we have them in a moment where now people haven't been able to go to them for so long and many are, many are opening now um, and I can't wait to go. Um, <laughs> but those questions being asked, like that teasing through can we build a better world? Can we build a better institution is in the very construction of the arts, especially the visual arts in a way that I don't see as rigorously sometimes because 
people really are like, whatever, like (laughs) there's a very like anarchist kind of stream within the visual arts that like I don't see in Hollywood and I don't necessarily always see in food. Um, We're constantly kind of mining through ourselves and picking ourselves apart um, and trying to do better at what we're doing. And I think it's because the roots of of the art world are so based in just the worst things. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's really, it's, I think, you know, in this moment I'm, I'm really leaning on not only my peers who are artists, my peers who are organizers. Um, but I feel really abundantly proud to be a person who gets to dedicate so much of their life to art. I mean, I suppose I should say in this conversation that, this is a book for younger people. And that part of what I enjoyed so much about the book is that I could picture the young kid like a younger version of you or like an older version of my own sons who are both black being talked to in a way about something that maybe they aren't always talked to, which is art and being encouraged to be curious about it or to care about it or, and to show them through the example of your own biography what art has meant for you without saying it has to mean that for them. Like the argument of the book is just like, this is what I know. This was my experience. It did something for me and it may do something. The the suggestion is it may do something for them. And that feels to me like really powerful advocacy that you're talking directly to kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I just want, I mean, I I think it circles back to the beginning of our conversation about whether art was in the background or like when, you know, radicalization or whatever moment, awakening moment happens is there could be so many more if we're given the permission. And I think especially as marginalized people, there's just so many things that are telling us no, ourselves included. I've had so many conversations with young people where they just feel like they can't do something. And I'm like, who told you that? And I was so obsessed with like, who told you, who did this? And I think in this phase, I'm just more like, okay, I'm going to not even get into the nitty gritty of why. What I'm going to say is that you can. And what I'm going to say is this is how I did it. And if this information in any way helps to inspire you to do whatever it is that you hope to do, take it, run with it. You don't have to do it in the way that I did it. You don't have to do what I did. This is just the story of someone who did not tell themselves no. And that's it. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ramon, that was a really lovely conversation. And I was particularly struck by her discussion of museums, 
not necessarily understanding how outsiders see them, which leaves many people who might well be very positively affected by what's inside their walls, not realising that this building has anything to offer them. And I'm curious, did you grow up going to museums? Do you recall the role that they played in your life as a kid? Art was definitely part of the diet in my family, but it was also a particular point of my own teenage rebellion in a strange way. Uh, It tells you a lot about my teenage years. Um, I spent my adolescence in the suburbs of DC and I was not especially popular or cool. And I spent so... (laughs) It's okay. I turned out fine in the end. But I spent so much time at the National Gallery of Art, which is, you know, and this is sort of notable, which is a free Mm. institution. Um, I was particularly spent a lot of time in the East Building, which is this really striking modern structure by I.M. Pei. Um, it's such a beautiful place. The collection's so incredible. I was in D.C. two years ago, and I had the chance to revisit that building for the first time in years. And it was, I mean, it was like Proust or something like that. The memories, <laughs> like the sense memory of the cafeteria or the vantage where you're standing in the, in the lobby and looking down and up simultaneously. Mm-hmm. I just, I love that museum. I really love the collection there. And the experience of being in there was just as rewarding at 41 as it had been at 19, which was kind of lovely to see. That's awesome. She also gave a really great reminder that museums need to understand and consider the needs of the people who don't currently visit them or even really necessarily know about them as much, or maybe even more than the people who go there all the time or know what the place is. And, you know, I think that's important in all kinds of situations, podcast networks, book publishers, theatres. And as she said, just being clear about what you can expect inside is crucial. Obviously, museums want visitors, but I think especially really elite institutions, we have to acknowledge that they kind of depend on seeming elite and also on raising money from the super rich. There's so many tiny ways in which if you just adjust your eyes a little bit, you can understand how a museum that feels welcoming to people like you and me mm-hmm. might feel unwelcoming to people unlike us, right? The presence mm-hmm. of security mm-hmm. guards, the idea of having to go through a metal detector, the idea of having to pay, um, you know, pay what you wish, which is a, a particular strategy yeah. at a lot of institutions where, you know, you can understand that museum goers might feel like, well, that means I can't just pay a dollar. I should pay $20, but I don't have $20, or I can't really exactly afford $20, or I don't understand what they're asking me, so I'll choose not to go. Or, you know, Kimberly said this thing that was so striking to me about her own youth, which is that nobody really told her as a kid that art could be a thing that she pursued professionally, and that maybe that's just something that people don't say to black kids. And I, you know, Mm. I I can't really argue that point, because I think she's probably not wrong. And Mm. that's disappointing to hear. Um, I will say, just to plug my beloved local Brooklyn Museum again, (laughs) I think they've done a good job of dealing with some of this. They have these big parties on the first Saturdays of the month, and um, there's no admission, there's music, there are talks and films and other programming. It's really understood to be for families, and it gets really crowded, and people know Mm -hmm. that it's fun, and crowds Mm -hmm. show up in force because they've seen it on Instagram and they've seen people having a good time. You know, I don't know what that's going to look like in a post-coronavirus world, but generally I do wish art institutions cared more about especially about getting young kids 
hooked on art because they're the patrons of the future. They're the donors of the future. And they need to learn that art is for them early in their lives. Yeah, yeah. I also loved her message that there's no one right reason to go to a gallery or a museum. Like going into a Smithsonian building to get out of the rain or to get out of the sweltering heat is just as good a reason as wanting to see a particular exhibit. Tell the truth, Roman. Do you agree? I do agree. You know, I have walked a fussy infant around the museum in the dead of winter. <laughs> you know, I've gone to museums and spent five minutes looking at art and an hour in a cafe. I've gone to museums to buy something in the gift shop. My younger son took a class in a museum last winter. And so while he was in class for 90 minutes, I just sat on a bench and read. And understanding the physical space as not sacred lets you have actually a more intimate relationship with art. Mm -hmm. You go to the museum to be moved or to, you know, to be entertained, but sometimes you just go because you want a cappuccino, and that's okay. Yeah, totally legit. So, June, now that New York's phased reopenings are sort of reaching a different level, what institution are you excited to go back to? You know, I live very close to the Brooklyn Museum, but... This is, I know, having just heard your last answer, I feel empowered to say that I, my favorite galleries, my favorite museums are portrait galleries. And I think there's something sort of slightly naff about that, because when you go to a portrait gallery, there's like a little bit of, it's almost like a trivia contest. Like you get to see the art and you get to enjoy that. But there's like a little bit of history. There's a little bit of like, can I identify that person? There's a little bit of kind of a puzzle about it. And I just love them. So given that we've been starved for art for the last few months, if I could kind of wave a magic wand and transport myself into a particular place, it would be the National Portrait Gallery in DC. And I have gone there a couple of times recently, and I have just loved seeing those lines in front of the Obama's portraits. Like, um, that is the dream. Shouldn't every gallery, every museum would love to see lines like that just to stare at something? That's so fantastic. I love to see that every single time I go there. That seems like a really apt response for the quarantine period, too, because we are starved for <laughs> art, but we're also starved for faces and people. Oh. And so interacting with yes. portraits is kind of a way of interacting with people, but they're not annoying because they don't talk to you and bother you. <laughs> <laughs> amen. Amen. <laughs> All right, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads in any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial right now at slate.com slash working plus. We'll be back next week for a conversation between Isaac Butler and the costume designer Brenda Abondandello. Until then, get back to work. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.